0: Hi, this is Danielle Krista from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 181 of Art for Your Ear. Well, here we are, the last episode of the season, and it is a good one. I've wanted to meet this woman for years, and it finally happened. Well, okay, we didn't really meet, but I did get to talk to her for a really long time over Skype. (laughs) Yep, as promised, today's guest is artist, illustrator, cartoonist, and writer Mimi Pond. Honestly, I was a little nervous to reach out and invite her onto the podcast because she's a big deal. So, when I had her husband on the podcast, one of my favorite artists ever, Wayne White, I asked him (laughs) to ask her for me, and she said yes. I had so many questions for her, and lucky for us, she had all the answers. Mimi's comics and graphic novels are filled with crazy stories, mostly from her own life, so you know she's going to be a good storyteller. In fact, how about I stop talking so we can hear some of them? Ready? Calling Mimi in Los Angeles. Anyway, here we are. I am so happy to kind of meet you.
1: Well, it's good to meet you too.
0: Yeah, in an audio kind of way. Um, I have known of you for so, so long. And I was totally nervous to talk to you. I don't know why. But last (laughs) night I had this dream. (laughs) This is the dream I had right before I woke up that I was, you and I were doing this interview, but it was video and Wayne was just off camera. And anything I asked you in English, you couldn't understand me. So I'd be like, so where did you grow up? And then you'd look at Wayne and be like, what, what did she say? And he's like, oh, she wants to know where you grew up. And you'd be like, oh, okay. And then you would tell me, and then I'd ask the next thing and you wouldn't understand me and he would have to translate. And I was like, what is, I woke up in a cold sweat and then and then I couldn't get the recorder to work in real life. And I was like, what, like my nerves are getting the best of me. So I'm glad we're just oh, finally here.
1: I just had my usual naked and public dream. <laughs> did you really? Yeah, you know, I never have, I very, very, very rarely have those school dreams where you're in the classroom and it's test day and you haven't studied, Yeah. but I'm naked all the time. And it's like, it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh, this again.
0: (laughs) Do you know you're dreaming or do you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I dream this all the time. I can't believe it's actually happening in real life. It's both. Yeah, (laughs) me too. I have those, but I also have the, I'm my age now and i had i have an exam and i'm like i have never even gone to this class yeah and now i have to write this french exam that i've never studied for oh the the artist's mind i think that's what it is yeah we have crazier dreams than regular people um so i want to know all the things um and I, I you know i've read lots of interviews with you before and stuff but um I always like to go back and talk about what people were like as kids to start out with. Um, and so what were you like? like well, first of all, where did you grow up? And then were you artsy when you were little?
1: Uh, I grew up in San Diego. Um, my father was a amateur cartoonist um, who was... Um, he had been in the Navy, uh, he was stationed in San Diego. That's where he met my mom who was, uh, had just moved there from Arkansas with her mother where they had come in search of better jobs. And, uh, it was like the, um, mid 1950s and things were booming. And my dad got a job at General Dynamics Convair, which was making, uh, uh, it was like the, the budding aerospace industry and, um. So he he worked all his life at General Dynamics Convair as a like a kind of a skilled blue collar worker um, making um, circuit boards, which were like the the predecessor to the motherboard. Wow. So, the, you know, these circuit boards that would go in in the nose cone of the missiles. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the, the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft and stuff like that. So, you know, he was he was like, you know, the the guy. uh sort of helping to assemble these in some way. I never could like quite get a you know an explanation out of him. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't trained as an engineer. So he was just like a a skilled blue collar worker who got a great union job. God bless unions, man. Wow. Oh my that's, god. That's that's what was responsible for middle class America. That's yeah. gone now, you know. Anyway, so he loved comics and raised me on a SETI diet of um, you know newspaper comics and collections of New Yorker cartoons and you know collections books bound, uh, collections of things like Pogo and little abner and and um, put those those um, pocketbook versions of of the EC mad comics mm. in my hot little hands as soon as I could <laughs> learn to read and I was like reading starchy and and <laughs> you know, all these warped Harvey Kurtzman, uh, mad magazine genius things when I'm like six and seven years old and going this, you know, Wally Wood and all that stuff. And just like, this is the greatest thing ever. And, you know, and I could, I displayed a talent for drawing and they're like, Oh, she can draw. She's going to be a cartoonist. And I was like, okay, that's it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And then was your dad, did he draw too?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he always was like doing cartoons for his co-workers and always would make everyone birthday cards and wow. uh, did a little political cartooning in the 60s and 70s for underground newspapers in San Diego because my parents were like these kind of autodidact working class lefties. You know, they had like <laughs> Pete Seeger records and, and – um, My father just hated Richard Nixon with a passion and taught me how to throw darts by throwing them at a picture of Nixon. (laughs) It's one of my earliest memories. (laughs) Oh, my God, that is perfect. And Uh, now both of us, he's 90 now, and we're like, hey, you know, Nixon, he was an asshole, but at least he was smart. You know, he's he's looking pretty good uh, next to Trump.
0: Well, I was going to say, does your dad have a dartboard with Trump on him? Oh, you can't even see anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'd still try. I'd still try.
1: Yeah. Um, Now now it's got Trump on it, you know.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, and so they, I guess then um, they must have been very supportive with you wanting to be an artist. They were very
1: supportive, you know, and got me art supplies and stuff. I didn't have one of those tortured childhoods where nobody understood me and everyone made fun of me. It was fine.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, in your head, were you thinking – Yeah, cartoonist, or were you thinking artist, or were you thinking like what were you thinking? Graphic novels? What were you
1: thinking? I was thinking, you know, artist and cartoonist and fine artist, and you know, got sent to to art lessons and uh, and you know, um, and then you know, as a teenager, um, of course, as a girl, you know, you get all the confidence just like sucked right out of you because. (laughs) You know, society and and societal expectations of what women and girls are supposed to do uh, just completely screw with you. And um, then I decided, well, I wasn't really good enough. I should just go to college. And and uh, my high school boyfriend and my brother were at UCLA. And my high school boyfriend had my whole life planned out for me. And, that's nice. <laughs> uh, and he was like, he was a couple of years older, and I was supposed to join him at UCLA, and we would move in together, and I would start having his children, and, and it was going to be great. And I was like, you know, I, I don't think I want to have kids. So I'm like, oh, I'll take care of them. He'd say, I'm like thinking, you know, that's not the way it works, oh, <laughs> even, God. even at that age. And, and so I graduated from high school a year early because we couldn't afford things like summer camp, which only existed in in my world in terms of, of, um, Alan Sherman's, uh, hit record and, and, uh, Mad Magazine. Uh, I mean, they didn't have summer camp wasn't a thing in California the way it is on the East Coast. And so in, you know, we couldn't afford that anyway. And so uh, every, every summer to, to keep her sanity, my mother enrolled us in, in, uh, summer school, which were all enrichment classes through grade school. And then, um, starting in junior high and high school, you you know you'd, you'd rack up all these credits. so I had enough to graduate a year early. And um, then I, it turned out that I was lacking the algebra credits I needed to get into UCLA where I'd been given a big scholarship if I could ref, you know fulfill these requirements. And I um, started taking algebra and um, you know just I couldn't grasp it and I started sleeping in all day and my mother, was a smart woman and she sent me to therapy and in, you know, within two sessions, we figured out I didn't want to be with this boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I dropped out of, uh, out of algebra. I dumped the boyfriend and, um, started looking into art schools. And, um, I was, I spent a couple semesters in community college after that, taking art classes. And I, um, you know, I'm, at that point, you had to like send away to colleges to get their brochures, you know, about them. And art school was like something I, I only knew there was the brand new uh, California College of um, Ca- uh, California Institute of the Arts in Valencia, um, which was started by Disney like just a few years, a couple Ooh. years before I graduated from high school. And then there was a, a place in Oakland called California College of Arts and Crafts. And uh, Valencia was in LA and I was in San Diego and I knew it was not far away enough from my mother. <laughs> <laughs> like she'd be up in my, you know, just all up in my grill like every weekend. And I I went up to Oakland on my own. Uh, I actually, I went, I visited the um, San Francisco Art Institute, um, which was, you know, on this wind whipped hill in in um, North Beach, and and just felt felt really remote, and it felt like it was still um, tainted by the specter of uh, the iron grip of abstract expressionism, uh, which, yes. in fact, it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I, I you know, I, I went over to Oakland, and I you know, walked up this hill and into this, this just charming little, uh, campus of Victorian buildings. Um, and that was, uh, CCAC, California College of Arts and Crafts. And everyone there was really friendly and answered all my questions. The students, you know, told me about their classes and what they liked and didn't like. And it just felt really warm and welcoming. And I just, you know, you didn't need a, uh, you know, a a great average. You just had to show a portfolio to get in, and, and so, you know, I, I got in and, and I was, <laughs> it was great. You, were you 17? No, oh, I was at that point I was 19. Oh, okay. I was like, that's, you know, I, 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 I actually,
0: that was oh, really done good. you two years. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I just kind of dicked around in community college and kind of got all that, that dicking around out of the way that pe- people do in their first couple of years of college. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time I got there, I was really ready to concentrate so that made a big difference too. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was gonna say. I mean, that nineteen is still young, but that's just so mature to like actually go and check it out and and not just go somewhere that you think you're supposed to go, but actually go and find a place that feels yeah. comfortable and feels good. Yeah. And so, what did you did you kind of do a whole bunch of stuff while you were there?
1: Uh, I did. Or did you, you, know, you focus
0: on drawing or painting? I was, or?
1: started to I was really fortunate because my first semester I took this wonderful class called uh, printmaking and creative writing and you got to do letterpress and writing and make your own books and it was like my god perfect dream for me and and I loved letterpress printing and the teacher became my mentor and we wound up collaborating on a couple of books together she got grants for and uh I took her class like two more times after that and uh, then I got into printmaking, and, and uh, so it was like a drawing and printmaking major. Um, I took, you know, I took a couple things like weaving and ceramics, and that really just didn't stick. <laughs> but yeah. I f- found my home in drawing and, and printmaking. And even, you know, they, they were, the teachers all poo-pooed comics. You know, that was like low. But, you know, I'd show them my comics, and they'd laugh at my comics. So I knew, you know. <laughs> I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm going to be doing it anyway. Everyone knows that. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, and it just seemed like I'm not surprised that weaving and stuff didn't stick because like, you are such a storyteller and, you know, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything that, you know, you didn't get to do some writing mixed in and... Like, you must have felt like that, like you you needed to tell stories. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And so while you were going to school, were you do, like, you were obviously still doing comics on the side then, but not for classes. Yeah. And were you doing it for any publications or was it just sort of for yourself at that time?
1: Pretty much just for myself. Um, I, you know, I got a, I got a couple illustration jobs, um, but I didn't get published until I, I, you know, so I was there for three years and then the, uh, the, you know, I was getting grants and scholarships, and that that they, that ran out. And at the end of the third year, and I was like, you know, I, a, a degree from this place is not going to do me uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> the slightest <laughs> bit of good. I mean, <laughs> and I was like, I'm kind of done here anyway. And I went and just like walked down the street and got a job at this restaurant mama's royal cafe um where i had been going as a customer for a while and i'd been getting to know some of the people that work there and it was like a super groovy scene it was like the hippest place in town and the the manager running the place was uh uh running it as his own you know was casting it as his own private opera he was <laughs> a uh, he was a a poet and a um had been a Latin scholar and, and was like super overeducated and, and, um, kind of a, uh, (laughs) um, semi derelict. (laughs) He was married and had kids, but he was spending all his time, uh, partying with these 20 somethings in this restaurant, but he, everyone, we all thought of him as our groovy beatnik dad. And he was very supportive of Everyone who was, you know, like a lot of people there had come from art school or were were uh, musicians or dancers. And um, he, the thing that was made it different to work there was that he always took your side. Like if there was a, a problem with a customer or something, and that was his motto was the customer is always wrong. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that didn't mean that you get, you were like, um, just automatically, uh, allowed carte blanche to give bad service I mean I took pride in doing my job well um but we kind of looked upon it it was like this is this is this is a job but it's we're just playing Mm. you know I'm playing a waitress in this in this uh, you know (laughs) temporary sphere and I'm gonna be doing something else this isn't my identity but I'll I'm gonna go along with it and play the part you know and and you know, we just had fun with it. It wasn't always fun. You know, it was when, it, when it's a full time job after there's a point where you just like hate people before they come in the door. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the service yeah, industry I, has that effect. <laughs> yeah, I, I eventually I scaled back to part time so I, I could focus more on my work. And by then I had gotten my first uh, regular cartooning gig, which was for a weekly newspaper that was the sister publication of the Berkeley Barb uh, which had had a um, a reputation as being like this wild, daring, uh, f- you know, firebrand, radical newspaper of the nineteen sixties. Here it is, the late seventies, and they're kind of like uh, you know uh, on their last legs, but they're being supported by their sister publication, which is a adult classified newspaper. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> I've got a cartoon in the Spectator. Which is uh, you know, uh, adult classifieds, and um one of the one of the best experiences I had was they let me sit uh, in the office on the day that people were people had to actually come in person to um put in ads
0: <laughs> Back to in bring the in day. their classifieds.
1: yeah, yeah they would like bring in their ads, and the sec- the you know the the receptionist would say like, you know, read it out loud. Oh my God. There's this room full of people that like ranged from like college coeds to like hookers to dirty old <laughs> men and, and are like, um, uh, okay. Uh, aging Lothario seeks hot young goddess for, uh, for potential coupling. Did you want that in bold face? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so Did that you just the- write down everything oh, you heard? Yes. Oh yes. Oh my well, and yeah. So I was going to ask. Like stacked up clippings, and I was able to send them off to magazines in New York, and um, you know, I, I luckily I, I got a response from Sherry Flanagan, who was the cartoon editor at the National Lampoon, who uh, started buying my work. So that was how I got started.
0: Oh my God! Okay, I have some, some follow-ups. So we're going to get to your books, but so over easy and the customer is always wrong are your two like amazing graphic novels that you just did in 2014 and 2017. Yeah. So for, did you, when you were working there at the restaurant, were you kind of writing stuff down? Like, were you taking notes of, like, the characters and, and you know, the, the the play that you were in? Like, were you writing stuff down then?
1: Uh, a little bit. And the the manager, who had become my uh, my good friend, and I always were talking about how we should make, you know, we should make some kind of book about or book or play or screenplay or something about about the whole experience. And um, we never got around to it. And then I finally left and moved to New York and we corresponded. And he would send me these fantastic letters describing all the latest dirt. And uh, so I I had those letters to, to pull from. And by that point, I was taking notes and trying over the years, slowly trying to organize it into some kind of cohesive narrative. And, um, you know, like years went by and I hadn't done it yet. And I was like, by then I had gotten successful and, and was, you know, uh, publishing in magazines all over the place and doing humor books. And I met my husband and then we got married and, and then we moved back to LA and had children and, I was like, you know, this thing is like burning inside of me, and I yeah. was like, you know, every time I'd I'd have a like near mishap with a you know car accident, I'd I'd go, man, I, I have to get this out before I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, in in LA traffic, you got to make a
0: move. You got to yeah. you got to get yeah. that done.
1: Um, and so and it just slowly over the years started shaping up.
0: Yeah, I love that it was that it was just in there the whole time, and so when you started to kind of put it oh, I'm totally getting ahead of myself. We're going to come back to this because I want to know about going to New York. And I also had another follow-up. When you got like those first few, um, like that first column or when, you know, the, the woman in New York was like, yes, you know, we're going to start working with you. Were you... Sort of like, yes, of course, I was always going to be a cartoonist. Or were you like, oh, my God, it's happening. Oh,
1: no, no, I was utterly thrilled out of my mind. I was just so excited. What did your dad say? Oh, they they were he was a big fan of the lampoon. So my parents were very proud. Um, So that was great. Um, And my co-workers, not so much. I mean, you know, there's that, that thing when you work in that kind of environment where you suddenly have, you know, you break out and everyone is threatened by the fact that you've broken out. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. So, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I don't need your approval. I'm moving on. Yeah. See you later. (laughs)
0: Um, and so did you, how long after all that sort of like, um, the national lampoon, how long after that did you actually move to New York?
1: Um, it took like at least a year and a half. I, uh, The Sherry Flanagan and some of the other uh, Lampoon cartoonists, um, Mary Kay Brown and Sam Gross, um, went to and a few others went to San Diego Comic Con uh, Mm. that summer. And and she invited me to join them. And, you know, that's where I'm from. And I'd grown up going to Comic Con. I met Ray Bradbury when I was 14 at like. The second Comic Con wow. <laughs> ever, and uh, and and back then it was totally different. It was a whole DYI, the uh, D- whatever, do it yourself. It was like put together. Comic Con was the brainchild of this this guy named Sheldorf who was like in his mid thirties, who had um, somewhat mysteriously uh, surrounded himself with with teenage boys who are into comics. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, you know that's that could be a whole movie. I, was say. I don't know enough about, but it does. You know, you, you're looking back, you go. Uh, anyway. yeah, I think you might have to
0: get John Waters involved in that. That sort of sounds <laughs> yeah,
1: like <laughs> yeah, or Gus Van Sant or. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my god! Anyway, um, what was brilliant about it was that they were shining a light on these. Cultural icons who had, were completely had been ignored. People like like uh, Chuck Jones and and um, Harvey Kurtzman and Jack Kirby and you know these people that you know and and um, uh, Stan Lee and and wow. uh, you know all these people who were you know giants of their industry, but like comics are so low and so looked down upon, and animation as well, and, and you know, science fiction, um, they said, you know, no, come tell us your stories, and and they came, because no one else was asking them, and they had stories of plenty to tell, and and so for, you know, the first 15, 20 years, it was this fantastic place where you could go meet those heroes, yeah. and talk to them, oh, oh my plant God. It, for God's sake. You know, it was a, a huge uh, Warner Brothers animator. And, and uh, you know, you just have these incredible conversations. And, yeah, you know, a lot of these people were, you know, uh, uh, super nerdy weirdos and arrested <laughs> development types. And, you know, let's not even get started about the Trekkies. <laughs> but, and it wasn't, you know, like I was like just a part of the subset because I was never into superhero comics ever. I just want to make that clear to anyone who made it clear to don't fucking care about superheroes. There's nothing in it for me. Noted. We've
0: got it. We've got it
1: recorded. I liked liked Archie Comics. I like Mad Magazine. I like Archie. I like, you know, Little Lulu. I like Richie Rich. Um, but you know, don't talk to me about superhero comics and don't tell me, no, I really need to see, you know, the, the, uh, early, you know, Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and the reason I'm like, it, it, it's like that whole market's like completely overlooked girls because they're like, for girls, you know, well, there's Supergirl and there's Catwoman and you're like, I, you know, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well,
0: and then the the way they talked about women. uh, Right. Right. Oh.
1: It was just accessories. Yeah. You know, and a woman was always falling and twisting her ankle when they're being chased by the bad guy, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, they caught up to that and, you know, now they have all these strong female protagonists and blah, blah, blah. But I I don't care about action, adventure, and superheroes, and I really don't care about science fiction either.
0: No, you (laughs) seem to care about just people stories. Yes, yes. Which is so much more hilarious, really. Like just, you know, like I love that while you were at that restaurant, you had the presence of mind to be like, oh, this is something that needs to be documented. And I've often said that to people who are like struggling creatively. I'm like, and you know, they need a job, but their art's not taking off. I'm like, go get a job at a coffee shop and use it as an inspiration. Like write down all the weirdness that you see, like, all the regulars, all the odd things like that right there is material for art.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and it was, you know, I was at an age where it was fun to just, you know, sort of say to myself, this is just a role. I'm pretending to be a waitress. I'll be a hard boiled, you know, uh, Joan Blondell waitress. That's what I'll do. You know, I mean, just a, a way to make it f- f- more fun for myself totally. and we have very interesting customers. I, I made, Friends there that are still my friends today, and um, you know I'm still close friends with a lot of the people that worked there, and uh, you know we, you know it was a shared experience of you know, this thing that, this weird thing that we all went through together. Cause I don't think I ever could have worked in any other restaurant than this one. Right. <laughs> yeah. It does a cast of characters. Get away with. Yeah. Um, okay. So you
0: go to Comic-Con with the national lampoon people. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and so I, I hook up with them and that's just like going to heaven. And then Sherry Flanagan invites me to um, come visit New York, which was like the foot in the door I'd been waiting for. And I was terrified of the idea of going to New York. I knew no one there. You know, it seemed like this big, scary place. And I'd like in the early, late 60s, early 70s, on 60 Minutes, there was this this show about how New York had completely gone to the dogs and it was this horrible hellhole. And <laughs> I remember wa- you know, watching it and, and it had always, like, as a kid, I read uh, the, the wonderful... Uh, book Eloise uh, oh, yeah. children's book and I was like you know between that and the New Yorker it was my dream to move to New York it just seemed so glamorous and fabulous it was like the center of the world and and uh I saw that 60 minutes and I was like oh man that's how that dream's over <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get mugged in the first two minutes yeah yeah and and so she invited me to stay with her. So I went and I visited her like actually I, I visited two or three times before I finally went there. And every time i and, and I went, you know, I went there and I the, the New Yorker cartoonist had a standing weekly lunch at a, a restaurant near the New Yorker offices they would all drop off their comics, their batches for the week. And then go have lunch. And they were like, it was really fun to have lunch with, you know, people like Roz Chast and and Bob Mankoff and Sam Gross and uh, all the other people. Because, uh, you know, it was clear these people spent their whole week cooped up in their apartments trying to think of ideas for cartoons. And they were saving all their best jokes to tell at lunch. So... <laughs> You know, <laughs> they were—they were just like I—you know—I just felt very much at home with them.
0: Um, Did you kind of look around and pinch yourself, or were you, were you sort of like, "Oh yeah, my god, yeah,
1: yeah"? Oh, George Booth too—he was a big hero. That was really thrilling. He was a really delightful person, um, and uh, you know, they kept saying, "You know, you, you need to move here." And I was like, "I don't know—I got a bunch of stuff. And like, <laughs> well, you know, we have stuff here." <laughs>
0: you know it's New York right there's some stuff going on
1: (laughs) so um you know and then it turned out that this um illustrator Roxy Monroe who uh was doing a lot of covers for them then um she still does children's books all the time now um was giving up a sublet on the upper west side and needed someone to take it over and so I was like that's me (laughs) wow So I moved in January of 1982 with my cat and like (laughs) 10 boxes, uh, to this, uh, this fantastic Columbia university apartment that was, uh, the woman that had the lease on it had been working for Columbia for years and had, you know, like there was this whole thing where they had these underpriced apartments for Columbia, uh, um, professors and, you know, they would just hold on to them for dear life and then she was like on sabbatical somewhere and and so it was this really nice apartment um and then after that I after the six months was up I had to move and I moved into this this horrible (laughs) rat hole apart 14th street you're like 60
0: minutes was right (laughs) (laughs) and and how old were you when you did this
1: move I was like twenty five, mm-hmm.
0: and were you scared or were you like just ready? Now you had like I was,
1: I was ready. I mean, I was had visited New York enough to to um, you know get comfortable with it. Yeah, I knew uh, your
0: way. Where, yeah, where things were, and you knew a few people, and yeah,
1: and yeah. Like once you catch on to the the gruffness of the New York character, you know it it uh, it just becomes funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so how, like being a California girl your whole life, um, did you feel like you kind of became a New Yorker or were you kind of, yeah, no,
1: I mean, you know, anyone who lives there longer than a year becomes a New Yorker. Like everyone who lives there more than two years becomes automatically Jewish.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so were you working right away? Like, were you freelancing or were you actually working for,
1: no, Excellent. I was freelancing and yeah. I, I, you know, I was getting, I, I, my big break really, the lampoon at that point was fine, except that we're no longer at their peak and they, um, were continuing to kind of like have a, you know, sort of, um, profile lowering. Um, they weren't as hot as they were like when I was in high school, but they mm. was still a, a good gig although my joke was like my my audience was was uh 14 year old boys in prison and, you know it's like having a a, a full page ad for yourself in a major metropolitan weekly newspaper the village voice so i was regularly doing full pages for her and got the attention of a an editor at dell books who took me to lunch and i was you know uh entertaining him with stories of my high school years in san diego and that moronic surfers i went to high school with him like hey man how, how's it going That's awesome man we gotta go catch some waves <laughs> and you know just kind of my usual goofing around and then he calls me and says well you know we want to do a book about valley girls i said what's that he said well it's this you know new hit song by frank zappa and his teenage daughter moon, moon unit zappa you haven't heard it all like no he's like well you know go listen to it and so I didn't even have a record player. I had to go buy the record. I had to go to a friend's house. I had to put the record on and listen to the song. And it's, you know, for those who don't know, it's his teenage daughter's making fun of her, her, uh, teenage friend, you know, classmates who are like airheaded dippy girls who are going, Oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, gag me with a spoon. I'm like, Oh yeah, I know what that, yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Okay. I'll do that. So I got a, a book contract to do this book and flew back out to LA, uh, and, and went to the Sherman Oaks Galleria and, and the, the beach and talked to teenage girls and churned this thing out in six weeks. And it became a bestseller. Oh my God. And, you know, it, it was like the, the, the grand heyday of the humor book. There had been like, you know, 101 uses for a dead cat and, uh, you know, how to train your pet rock or something like that. And, and, and I, after that, I did like four or five more humor books. Cause you know, it was like really easy to like, you just write up a proposal and, and, and some bullet points on it and show it to the publisher. And they go, yeah, great. <laughs> oh my
0: God. And yeah, I know I've, I've got a giant list of them here. I just kept, there was more and more and more. And, um, so when you would do those, so this was in like the mid eighties, right? 82, yeah. 83, 85. Um, yeah. So how long did they, they must have taken you a long time though, because.
1: No, those things were, they, they were like really fast to churn out really. Oh my God. You know, it wasn't like a graphic novel. It was like, you know, writing and illustrations. Um, Secrets of the Powder Room was all drawings, but that was fun. That didn't take that long. Um, <laughs> For you. Well, um, yeah.
0: And so, so you did, so what you would, would you do the actual, you do the actual drawings and then just hand them over and then they would like print it like do all yeah. that stuff yeah so if-
1: unfortunately that the the design on most of them is pretty shitty but <laughs> <laughs> did you
0: have any control over anything or you just handed over your artwork
1: um I, I didn't have that much control did you no. care I did but it was you know I don't know you know what they I wasn't taking it that seriously right um
0: but that must have been some like a nice um, I mean, I'm sure you weren't. Rolling I was making, dough, I was but that's making good. money. You know, yeah. I mean, you
1: could make money then. Yeah. I mean, they paid they paid real advances. And when you did artwork for illustrations for magazines, they paid you real, real money.
0: <laughs> and so <laughs> it wasn't for exposure. You know,
1: no, no, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm going to start crying. I know. Uh, <laughs> Me, too. I'll cry along with you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know like editors had jobs where they got paychecks and and benefits and um, freelancers got paid well and you got and you got expenses and you know you if sometimes they'd send you someplace and they they'd pay for everything and you know magazines had budgets. Right. Oh. I mean oh that that um that wonderful documentary about Diana Vreeland the editor of Vogue it's called the the the, the eye has to travel. Mhm. Um, it it just made me so deeply sad because magazines, well, first of all, magazines and newspapers used to be twice the size they are now. And back in the like the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, up until like the 70s, they were just huge and and they would have multi-page spreads that were, you know, these like the in vogue, they'd have it like they'd send the photographer and the models and the all the assistants off to like Egypt to do a photo shoot in the dunes or something. And, yeah. and it, you know, it was like this, this visual narrative that would just go on for pages and they were just gorgeous. And oh, I know
0: good. times they are a change. And well, so when you were doing all of these, um, these books, were you, you were still um, doing your village voice.
1: Yeah. And
0: then when in there did you meet Wayne? What year?
1: Um, that was 84. Okay. Uh,
0: so when I just had him on the podcast, he was saying when he had arrived in New York and he was at a party that you were at, he's like, oh, I already knew who she was because she was hot stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, I had done, you know, I'd done the Valley Girl book and I was publishing in the Village Voice all the time. And yeah, I was kind of the gal about town.
0: Yeah. And he said that he had just shown up and he said, you know, I like, he here I thought I was on this hero's journey and you know gonna make it big in the big city and and i said so when mimi met you did she think that you were a hero or did she think you were an idiot he's like an idiot
1: (laughs) oh no no not at all no (laughs) i had i had i had uh we had a mutual friend ron haugie who um was also a lampoon cartoonist and um he said i'm gonna go to this puppet show in the in down on the bowery tonight you want to go i was like you know, at that point I was like I was like in like dating delirium. Uh just I was like, oh God. All right, maybe I'll meet someone. <laughs> <laughs> and we go to this hole-in-the-wall gallery uh, uh and and Wayne is putting on this spectacular puppet show with a cardboard stage and all these these crazy puppets he's made, and I was like this is the greatest thing ever, and then he like pops his sweaty head out from behind the stage after it's over, and I was like, "That's the man for me." <laughs> <laughs> and we all went out to dinner together, and I was like, "Oh, this is, this is, this is the guy."
0: And, and that was that. <laughs> that was that. Wow, because I think yeah, that's what he was thinking too. That this is the girl. Like that is. Amazing. My husband and I met at IBM in a bunch of gray cubicles with fluorescent lights flickering overhead and you guys met at a puppet show in New York. That's very right on brand for you guys.
1: At least you had health insurance. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Canadian. I live in Canada too. I had Uh-oh. it all, baby. Um, well that that's so cool. Like I and I love all the old pictures of you guys that you know you occasionally will post on Instagram and stuff, because, um, it's just so neat. Like you were really there at such a cool time, you know, and you were both kind of like trying all this new weird stuff in a place where that seemed really open to new weird stuff. It was. Yeah. When he got Pee Wee's Playhouse, you got a little bit involved in that too, didn't you?
1: Well, uh, I can't remember if it was the second or the third season. Um, I, uh, Lynn Stewart. Actually, I tried to get Lynn Stewart on the on the humor book gravy train with me, to do a humor book called like Missy Vaughn's Guide to Life, uh, which would be a a parody of those. There, there was this hor- these horrible sort of backlash anti-feminist books uh, in the late '60s, early '70s called like it was one called Fascinating Womanhood. Oh, it was about like like should like, uh, dress yourself in cellophane and, and high heels yes. uh, and oh your husband at the door with a martini when he comes home from work and shit like that. And, <laughs> um, and, um, but from the point of view of Miss Yvonne, you know, the, the, the most beautiful lady in puppet land, um, with that kind of breathless Missy Yvonne voice. And we were, you know, just had a blast thinking of all these ideas for it and, and Paul Rubens. Uh, put the big k-bosh on it because he wanted like most of the money from it. Ah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so instead, we wrote an episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse together, um, which was the uh, Rebarella, which is where Missy Von makes over Reba the mail lady for her date with Derek the fireman. Oh my and, god! <laughs> and we had so much fun writing it. And um, unfortunately, it was my downfall uh, in terms of writing for television because. What they did was they took our script and they shot it. <laughs> they just didn't change anything. I thought, this is the way it works.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you found out that maybe not.
1: Oh, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, that,
0: it seemed like it was a pretty special. I mean, I, I grew up all through my teenage years, that was every Saturday morning was Pee Wee's Playhouse. And my friends and I knew all the words to all the stupid jokes and um it was just such a weird neat like anything goes kind of world so I'm not surprised that your crazy script went straight through
1: (laughs) yeah I mean it was this it was this um very uh it it was like this brief window that opened like um that only happens you know it's like once in a lifetime thing where somehow someone just gets away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And, and they had a woman who I think was a pretty bad alcoholic and she just wasn't paying that much attention.
0: <laughs> That's and what we morning,
1: need. And they weren't paying that much attention anyway. And uh, it was just a gold mine for, for uh, Paul Rubens and for everyone concerned. Yeah. Cause it was like, you could just do whatever you wanted. And there was a budget and, it was fantastic.
0: Oh my God.
1: You know, God bless him.
0: Yeah. No kidding. And so, so you guys are doing all this crazy stuff. What made you, what was the thing to get you to move back to LA?
1: Well, Wayne was getting more work out here. The, the last season of Pee Wee was, was out here and oh. we were, we were subletting out here and, you know, it was just, you know, it's like life is just easier in L.A. than it is in New York. Like everything in New York is like a struggle. Right. You know, it's like everyone has to give you an attitude and then you have to give them an attitude. <laughs> Every day is like just going to do something like buy rubber cement on a Sunday. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: you're like, I like totally just want to like buy my rubber cement easily. I'm going to like do it in L.A. <laughs>
1: oh my god they could just go to salon <laughs> <laughs> and, and you no, but, you go to the bodega and they go uh, uh rubber uh, you mean a condom I'm like no
0: <laughs> <laughs> although that would end up making some interesting art too but different yeah different right. um, uh, now and you guys we, had, you know, had your talked
1: about you know we, we we got married in 1988 and and i my you know my parents are still in san diego and we knew at some point we wanted to have a family and um People had already terrified me in New York by describing to me like dressing their toddler to go out, you know, in, in a snowsuit and mm. getting them stuffed into the snowsuit only to have to take them out of it so they could go pee mm-hmm. and then, you know, having to do it all over again. And then like that, the, getting their 10 year old a bicycle and allowing them to ride it around the block while they hold their breath the entire time.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can't <laughs> even was kinda,
1: It was like, you know, we both grew up in suburbs, so it was like. We just couldn't, didn't, we have very good friends who, that we had then who also had children and raised them in New York and successfully and, you know, made it work, but it was just not what we wanted to do. So, uh, and Wayne was getting a lot more work out here in children's television at the time. So it just made sense.
0: Both of your kids were born in LA. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm the same way. I grew up in a small town, and that's just sort of how I pictured, you know, like riding your bike wherever you want, and all of these things. And so, yeah, I can totally see. My husband and I got married in Toronto. We were living right downtown, working in advertising, like we were go go go. And we were we just gotten married, and we were talking about when we were gonna have kids. And I said to him, "When was the last time you saw a baby?" And he's like, well, he's like, there's that lady in our building that walks her rabbit on a leash. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, that's not a baby.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they're like... Doing uh, trick-or-treating door-to-door in an apartment building.
0: Yeah. No, I didn't (laughs) want that. And so we ended up moving to Vancouver. And then we've gotten some... We've ended up now, seven years ago, we moved back to the tiny little town that I grew up in. And my son actually jumps off the same dock into the lake that I used to jump off of. So it's really, like, been this... Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's really, really nice. But I totally hear you guys of, like, wanting to just have... You know, having kids is hard enough. The easier you can make it on yourself, (laughs) the better. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so... There was still, okay, so I've got your list of books here. Um, there's 91, 98, 2014. Oh, and by the way, when I was looking up all of your books, when I looked you up on Amazon for to get the list of all your books, did you know that there's also a book on that search called Mimi and the Deep Dark Pond?
1: <laughs> no I didn't know
0: that <laughs> I think you need to buy it it's about this weird little newt I think is Mimi I'm not sure what she is and she goes on an adventure to the deep dark pond and she meets a quote disagreeable fish named cuddles oh I think you need to look into this <laughs> just FYI it might, yeah it might have to be on your Christmas list anywho um okay so you guys get to LA he's doing his tv stuff and um did you that's when is that when you started writing for um like are doing comics for the LA papers and stuff.
1: Um, yeah, I'd been doing, I, I did a strip in the LA weekly for a while, but I was mostly doing it from New York. Oh. And so I wasn't getting any feedback. This is, you know, pre internet and, and, no one was, you know, I, I, no one I knew saw it cause I was in New York and I, I never heard anything from the newspaper about the way, you know, it was going over. Um, so that was actually, I didn't really start doing stuff for the LA times until we moved here. Um, and not until my kids were, uh, after my kids were born. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and when they
0: were first born, did you take a little break or were you still? Yeah,
1: yeah I was, it was, um, I did have a break. Um, we, I, I, when my son was three months old, I'd got a job on uh, on staff at Designing Women. Oh, yeah. It was the last season. It was 1992, and Linda Bloodworth, who created the show, was off winning the election for Bill Clinton because they were both from Arkansas. And she's the one that directed that little movie called A Town Called Hope. Oh yeah. Uh, and and uh, the inmates were running the asylum at that point. <laughs> And they were making all these decisions about the characters that weren't really, I didn't think were the best. And I wasn't, it was the worst job for me at that point in my life because I'd never been a mother before. They, they were like being all PC and let me bring the baby and the nanny with me to work. But that really wasn't conducive to any kind of focus. Yeah. But I was breastfeeding and I couldn't get my son to like take a bottle ever. Yeah, same with mine. <laughs> uh, and, and. Um, I wasn't getting any sleep, uh, and every idea I could come up with had already been done in, in the previous five seasons. Mm -hmm. And if I did come up with an original idea, uh, it, it got kicked to the curb for one reason or another. Uh, Jan Hooks was on the show that season and I, I had an idea for a show with her and there, I, you know, I presented it to them and they said, Oh no, the network doesn't like her. (laughs) Oh my gosh. a shame. Uh, and she was someone who was so brilliant and, um, she didn't come for table readings. She like would come for the rehearsal and the taping. And I mean, you could tell she knew. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, and you know, that, that was the kind of work where they pay you a fortune, but they want you 24 hours a day so that, you know, people would like roll in at 10 AM and they'd be there at, at till 11 p.m. Right. And I just couldn't work that way. And it just was luckily they you know after my they didn't pick up my option after the first three months. And I was so grateful because I was just miserable.
0: Yeah. Well and when you have your first baby too like you never know how hard it's going to be. People can tell you and you're like yeah yeah but I'm cool and I'm organized (laughs) and you know whatever. And then the baby comes and you're like oh sweet god like yeah yeah yeah. And you can't possibly know how hard it's going to be and try to be creative and funny and yeah. all that stuff while you're, you know, nipples are chafing or, you know, yeah. So it, it's, it's a lot. So you, so did you just totally take a break? Are we still doing, um, any of your, um, columns for the papers or anything? Or were you just No, you
1: know? I was pretty much, uh, I mean, there probably did some stuff. I can't even remember. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until my kids were in preschool um, that I finally started to get some traction. And that's when I started taking notes and and trying to organize uh, over easy, um, mm. which I eventually because here's the thing. My son was like a few months old and I was gazing into his eyes adoringly. And I had this giant epiphany, epiphany finally about what the story was about because I couldn't quite figure out what the big drama was. Like I had all these, you know, these, these kind of episodes and stories of, you know, little snippets of things that had happened, but I didn't have a a cohesive idea of like who the main character was. And, uh, then it dawned on me that the, um, the manager who was my boss, my good friend had, had died. And, um, I, you know, I looked in my son's eyes and I was like, well, you know, this guy, he was, he was out partying with us and he had these children at home. He wasn't really being a very good father, was he? He was kind of like absent. He was like feet of clay. Hmm. And I was like, oh, now this makes it much more interesting. He's now he's a, uh, you know, he, he's flawed and he's human. And, I, you know, I can, this makes it so much more interesting. Hmm. Wow. Oh. So I finally had, you know, I had my hook. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so once my kids were in preschool, uh, I was, you know, I I thought, well, <clears throat> first of all, I thought, you know, is this a screenplay? Is this a novel? Is this a graphic novel? And I was like, graphic novel? That's crazy. No one could ever do that much drawing. That's insane. <laughs> and I, and, I, and <laughs> It I is, been, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I had been, you know, in in Hollywood long enough to know that even if I wrote it as a screenplay it would never it might never ever see the light of day <clears throat> and the only thing I knew about was publishing and books and I was like well I can, can totally control a novel I could write write it as a novel <clears throat> so that's what I did I wrote it as a conventional piece of fiction and Uh, My agent couldn't sell it. And then I finally had to break down and admit to myself that, of course, it wanted to be a graphic novel. I could see everything, you know, I I knew exactly what the world looked like. I knew what every page should look like. And so I finally started on that. But I didn't even start on that until my kids were like, let's see, that was 2008 (laughs) <laughs> wow. Wow. And so
0: this is when I was getting ahead of myself before. So now we've caught up. Um, when you started putting all of that together, you know how sometimes like memories from stuff become myths in your mind, like they, yes. you've turned them yes. into stories, right? And so is that a lot of the stuff you're writing now mixed with the letters that he had sent you mixed with?
1: Yeah. Well, my- I mean, I decided that it should be fiction because, because uh, to do it factually, um, well, someone who's really good at that, is Susan Orlean, who just does it fantastically, Um, nonfiction. But for me, it just became like, uh, you know, it it kind of petered out slowly the way life does, where, you know, great dramas don't always just present themselves before you they you know it's sort of like and then and then and then <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i thought no like i need to like wrestle this into a, a big dramatic narrative of some kind so i i re i sh, you know shuffled the cards and reshuffled events and assigned things that happened to some people to other people yeah and um so that's yeah it's very freeing actually i it, you know what it is is it took me a long time to figure out how to do that because my mother had always—I uh, mean, I was convinced my mother could always tell when I was lying, and I was a <laughs> terrible liar. And um, actually, liars are 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 people who lie are, are like one of the worst things I can imagine. Like people who just lie for the sake of it, or like they just lie right. to like breathing for them, right. like our president. You know, and and like you can never trust someone like that. So I've always placed a big, uh, a big value on on truth telling, and um, the idea of fiction to me was like, well, that's lying. But then once I learned it, like, no, it's it's fiction, right? <laughs> do it. You can. It's it's not lying anymore. It's telling a story. There you go. <laughs> well, have to get over that hump. Yeah, and I could
0: see that because. Um you know, it takes those epiphanies. It takes like the the looking into your son's eyes moments. It takes those things to, you know, sometimes you're just barreling down a a track one certain way. And every now and then you need to go, wait, why am I barreling this way? Like I need to shake it up and know that fiction is fiction and not a lie. And I can rearrange these things because this is the world that you're creating. So you get to make the rules.
1: Yeah, you're God.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) awesome. And so I know like, um, the customer is always wrong came out in 2017. And, but that's basically, I read somewhere that that was going to be one giant story and it was just like insane to, yeah, to try no, and get my, it.
1: No, yeah. My, my publisher kept calling me and saying, oh, when do you think you could have this done? And I'd be like speechless, just, you know, just like gasping <laughs> into the phone. And finally they said, well, why don't we d- divide it into two parts? And that made it much more manageable. Yeah,
0: but I mean, still, I looked up on, when I was looking at Mimi in the Deep Dark Pond, um, that Overeasy is 272 pages, and the customer's always wrong, is 448.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I had to, to break it up somewhere where it made sense.
0: I know, but so, my you know, God, that's so many drawings. You must have been a drawing maniac well, for years. By,
1: by the time Overeasy was done, the kids were finally <laughs> in college. Now they're in college. <laughs> I have my life back. <laughs> and so
0: was it the process um you know now that it's 20 whatever 2014 2015 in there was the process really different than the way that you had done your like the valley girls guide and stuff for well, you like the way you were drawing were you doing things yeah, digitally I mean, or
1: no, I was. I've never worked digitally, um, and my publisher wanted me to do separations between the tone and the line, which can be done digitally very much easier. But I was. They wanted me to do it because it prints more sharply. Okay. Um, but I fucking hated it, and I still <laughs> resent that they made me do that, and it ruined a lot of the process for me. I realize now because. I had to like I would do the line work and then I'd have to get a a LED light pad and put that tape that down and then put a piece of of lightweight watercolor paper over that and turn off the lights and do the the watercolor wash over over the line, you know, in in the dark, you Mm. know without really being able to tell what it looked like it was just kind of like my you know my best guess yeah and and then just ship it off to them and let them reassemble it uh digitally and I you know I told them with the, the book I'm working on now I'm not I'm never gonna do that ever again you can't make me and they were like <laughs> kind of bullying me about it it's like well Seth does it that way i <laughs> Brown does it that way. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> and I, I'm working, the book I'm working on now, it's all, all on one piece of paper. <laughs> it's line and tone. Water. No, it's a different, it's a blue this time instead of green, but it was like every stroke is a pleasure. <laughs> oh, that's so good.
0: And so are you allowed to talk about what this new one is about?
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's about the Mitford sisters who were, um, uh, there's people who there's a, there's a, um, demographic of people who absolutely are Mitford fiends. And then there's the greater world who has never heard of the Mitfords who are six aristocratic British sisters born between 1904 and 1920 who were, uh, educated at home, um, in the middle of uh, the Cotswolds in England, um, and uh, just kind of like sprung full blown from Venus Ear um, <laughs> onto the scene in the 20s and 30s, and um, the 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 elevator pitches they all did a bunch of shit they shouldn't have done. <laughs> uh, what made fr- you want to do this? What, what? Well, I, uh, it started. I knew about one of them who was a Um, had written a book that just galvanized my parents. They were like just running all over the house, screaming, Jessica Medford, American way of death. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's this, um, book that, uh, in the early sixties, she published, it was an expose of the American funeral industry that actually did involve changes in legislation for the way, uh, the funeral industry is run because they were just taking advantage of people horribly, um, you know, at their, at their most vulnerable, you know, in, in having just lost loved ones. They're like, well, of course you want to spend a zillion dollars on this casket. Cause you loved them, right? Right. <laughs> that kind of shit. And it, and it also, um, my parents signed up for a funeral society in which, which down the line in, in, uh, 2009, my mother saved 90% on the cost of her own cremation, which would have just thrilled her to no end. <laughs> um, and so I knew about Jessica Mitford. She was a, a, uh, firebrand, uh, muckraking journalist. I knew about her and I didn't know she had sisters until the eighties. And then I discovered there was a whole publishing industry built around books about the Mitford sisters and started gobbling them up. And then they were just kind of like my hobby for a long time. And then, um, uh, unfortunately there was a period where, um, I'd start talking about them at like a dinner party and I wouldn't I shut up and it would just infuriate Wayne. <laughs> and I, and it was like a, it was like a disease. It was like, I would just go on and on and I see people's eyes glazing over and I just kept talking. <laughs> and it was really bad. We had some really bad fights about that.
0: <laughs> Nobody cares about the midfers.
1: <laughs> and I was like, well, how do I make them care? I'll show them. So now that I'm showing instead of telling, which is the big, the big, big secret of visual storytelling and movie, writing a movie, show, don't tell. Oh, my uh, God. I'm, I'm getting, you know, a lot more positive response. Okay, now.
0: so what? Now you're working on it, but then do you have? To, are you still telling Wayne after you like we work on it for the day and be like, listen to what I did today about the Mitford sisters?
1: Well, no, he's he's a lot more positive about it okay, now. that's good. Like channeling it into it you know something and he can see what i mean he's actually right. much more interested in it now so nancy mitford the oldest became a very successful comic novelist what? uh she was also one of the bright young things of the 1920s and was friends with evelyn waugh and um cecil beaton i mean, basically although their father was a minor uh, he was a baron he was like all the, like on the low rung of the of the aristocracy but they their cousin was um through their mother, they they uh, were related to Winston Churchill, and they kind of, you know, like, once you're, like, in with those people, like, and you're related to them, everybody, because it's such a small country, like, they all right. know each other, so they kind of had the advantage of, they had no money because their father was a complete idiot about money, and he was, like, busy spending what money they had left just into the ground. So, and they were told their whole lives, there's no money for you. You're going to have to like marry someone rich or fend for yourself, you know, good luck. (laughs) Um, Were they beautiful? Like Like, were they, they were gorgeous. And, and, um, in the twenties and thirties, the aristocrats were like the Kardashians of their day and they were always on the covers of magazines and, and they were, um, I don't. I hesitate to compare them to the Kardashians because uh, they were a lot smarter and they had uh, they were much more interested in politics and and literature and and things like that. Um, but they were, you know, they were in the public eye all the time, and they were always getting into trouble. And their mother said, you know, whenever I see the headline, Peer's daughter,' I know it's going to involve one of you. Uh, <laughs> And so um, there was only there was one quiet one who um, just stayed in the background, but um, probably at the end towards the end of her life was a lesbian. So there's that. But then uh, so Nancy was a novelist. Uh, Diana um, was um, really the most beautiful one and uh, immediately got married off to a, a Guinness heir, but then left him after three years and two children for the uh head of the British Union of Fascists Oswald Mosley which was fantastically scandalous at the time and she's like living in sin by herself in a in London at his beck and call he's married and has kids and she's just like there like yeah i'm just here baby <laughs> oh, oh my god and and uh then her next younger sister unity um oh was um uh, became obsessed with Hitler and went to Munich to study German, but she really just went to h- Munich to stalk Hitler, which she did successfully, <laughs> became Hitler's like, number one groupie, not in a sexual way, but like his 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 biggest fangirl, and you know like he let her h- hang around. And uh, then the next youngest sister Jessica, who's her polar opposite, decided at 12 that she was going to be a communist. And ran away with her cousin when she was 18, who was uh, 19. Uh, her cousin was Winston Churchill's nephew, uh, possibly son, illegitimate oh. son. And they ran off to cover the Spanish Civil War together. And that was another gigantic scandal. In 1939, Britain declares war in Germany, uh, on Germany Unity is beside herself. She's in Munich. She goes to the park and shoots herself in the head, but she just incurs brain damage. Oh, my God. She's sent back to England. And then the youngest, Deborah, um, uh, marries uh, a younger son of the Duke of Devonshire, Um, the his older brother, who is set to become the next duke, dies in World War Two, and then so so Deborah becomes the Duchess of Devonshire. So you got a Duchess, a Commie, two fascists, and a successful novelist. Oh my! Word. See, that, of course you have to do this. Of course. I mean, and they just and they they just they knew everyone. I mean, like Jessica Mitford was friends with everyone from Winston Churchill to to um, um, she, well. She, Oh, who's the, um, I'm thinking of, the, um, Maya Angelou. Oh my gosh! I mean, yeah. Cause she, so her husband, the, her fellow communist, uh, died in world war II and she married a, uh, American Jewish lawyer and lived in Oakland and they became, um, huge civil rights activists and, um, uh, union, uh, organizers in the fifties. And, um, And that's who your parents read?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. And so, well, when I was talking to Wayne, he's, and I was like, can you ask Mimi if she'll come on the podcast? He said, I will, but she's really busy because she's finishing up her latest book. But you,
1: are you actually finishing up? This is a nice way to put the fact that I'm only 50 pages into it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you've got a plan. Like now you're just making it all happen.
1: And so do you know
0: when it will be
1: out? Well, it's going to be a couple of years. Yeah. You know, we'll see.
0: Yeah. That is really exciting. It well, sounds yeah, like, yeah, it needs to be like a Netflix special. Hard.
1: Oh, it's, yeah, it could be a whole gigantic movie. I mean, because they really, they just lived across the whole span of the 20th century. And, you are know, like, in this, like, they just knew everyone and went everywhere and did everything.
0: Well, and especially, like, in the 20s and 30s, like, that, the the look of that, too, is so yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Like, Yeah. 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 Oh my word. Well, I'm very excited to see that one too. It'll be right up there with all the others and, and Mimi in and the Deep Dark Pond. So, <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to, I've kept you on here for too long, but I'm going to, and with all of our technical difficulties, I made you sit around and do spelling bees while you waited for me. Oh, it's um, rough. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to do the not so speedy speed round. Okay. Which in theory was supposed to be speed rounds, but then I always ask more questions so it's never very fast so first one considering your days at the diner how do you like your eggs uh I like my eggs poached yeah oh me too good old do you do the eggs benedict
1: uh you know no because I don't have the patience for the (laughs) hollandaise and and honestly the restaurant I worked at is still still exists I hope after this is all over Um, (laughs) oh yeah no kidding they still make the best breakfast I've ever had, and it's really hard for me to eat anywhere else. Oh, uh, Do you still go there? I mean, it's hard for me to eat breakfast anywhere else. Well, it's in Oakland, so oh, I go right, there right. When, I'm, when I'm there, but it, I'm spoiled for breakfast anywhere else. Yeah,
0: fair enough. I, I, I had to see if you were going to say over easy. I, that's why I had to ask that <laughs> question. Um, <clears throat> okay, true or false, you've been to a hamster show
1: yes true
0: i saw that on your site that must have been the most hilarious weird experience it
1: was. it was so weird
0: how many people were there like were there actually you know, people there?
1: yeah there was like i want to say eight people there <laughs> including us oh my god
0: how many hamsters
1: uh well let's see there was, you know, there, I, I went with my with my good friend Vanessa Davis and her husband Trevor Alexopoulos, who are both really fantastic cartoonists, and my, my teenage daughter, who was a teenager at the time, and, you know, said hamster – well, first Vanessa says, we're going. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. And it was like hamster show, Griffith Park, and I imagined, you know, there would be this huge building, like the kind of buildings, public – civic buildings, auditorium, like multi-use buildings where they set up conventions and stuff, but no, <laughs> get there and it's like in the middle of this picnic ground at this picnic table and there's like six hamster cages <laughs> sitting on top of this picnic table and this, this sad woman wearing a t-shirt with her hamster association <laughs> logo on it, lecturing to like maybe... Three parents and two or three children who've brought their hamsters to be judged. Oh my god! Oh my god! That's
0: the best. <clears throat> well, I'm telling You're Wayne. So I'm. Sad. I know. Oh my god! I'm. I'm friends with um, Esther Pearl Watson and oh, yeah. Mark Todd, and um, they always end up these at these things too. And I swear it is purely to gather material for the next weird. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. <laughs> So when someone says hamster show, you're like, hell yes, everybody get in the car. <laughs> yeah. I only brought it up so that I can show it in the post that I'm going to put with this because I thought when you said that she actually kind of looked like a hamster herself, the lady, <laughs> I love that drawing. And I was like, okay, I have to ask her about this. So I have an excuse to put that in the post. So funny. Um, okay. I have a question about Mabel's sticks. Yes. So your your dog, Mabel, she's always mm-hmm. carrying a stick. Does she find those sticks on the walks, or does she have a collection of sticks? that? Because some of them look the same. Does she have a stick that she heads out with in the morning?
1: We we do have the collection. Uh, People want to know where the collection is housed. I always say it's in a 27,000-square-foot temperature-controlled airlock vault. (laughs) (laughs) There's really just a pile of sticks on our porch to choose from. (laughs) Sometimes there's landscaping going on in the neighborhood and and sticks aplenty in people's green bin yeah. outside their house. Yeah. Um, but um, there hasn't been that much lately. So we, we, we um, take from the collection.
0: And is she so excited to have, or is it just like, it's just a requirement. She just needs to have Oh no, she,
1: she, it's just the first, we, you know, with the lockdown and everything, we've just been walking around the block like four times a day. So the yeah. first walk of the day, she gets a stick and it, she's almost 12 and she's got arthritis. And so it's, it's hard to get her to move very fast, but if she has a stick, she's really motivated. She really (laughs) is very proud of her stick. And she really wants for people to see it and to react and and go, Oh, look at that dog. Look at that stick. My God, that's fantastic. She just lives for that. Oh my God.
0: It's so cute. It's like, she almost looks like a baby with a soother, you know, like I'm keeping this like you can't take yes. it away
1: oh no she can't no. no no well that was the whole thing it's like you you chase her and pretend you want the stick very badly oh, and she's like, oh no, no you oh. cannot have my stick
0: that is very exciting oh she's very sweet I had see again I had to say that th- these questions are basically so that I can show the pictures I want to show and she's so cute I have a 14 year old wiener dog uh, who's almost blind now and arthritic and whatever but he's so and he, he only has 3 teeth left so his tongue just constantly <laughs> hangs out of his mouth.
1: Oh. He's so, old dogs cute. Are so good.
0: I know. Um he couldn't carry a stick though because a he is like 2 inches off the ground and um he now he only has 3 teeth. So, you know, we do what we can. Um okay. This is a two-part question. What color is your hair right now? followed by how many colors has it been?
1: Well, right now it's still kind of um, bluish. the The color is really hung in there, amazingly. Um, so it's it's mostly blue with a little pink, a little bit of pink at the top that's slowly that's dying out. Um, and I, it's other than that, it to be white. Um, but uh, it's been like uh, at least four or five colors. My hairdresser is also my screenwriting partner, and he's this wonderful, uh, wonderful guy from New Zealand. And he's, he's, he's a great storyteller himself, which is how we got started. I kind of talked him into collaborating with me. Um, we haven't had any success in terms of selling them, but we've had a lot of fun. Um, but he, he's just a real artist, He's a really amazing hairdresser and colorist.
0: Yeah, clearly. Well, so I was just going to ask when you said screenwriting partner, are you still writing? Like Hollywood hasn't tainted you? You're still doing writing screenplays.
1: Hollywood has tainted me, but I just do it, you know, uh, you know, just to keep my hand in, and because he he's really passionate about it, and and who knows? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I can't I can't imagine. You not getting something? Like I, I would watch it in a heartbeat. Whatever it is, so there. Tell somebody in Hollywood that. I'll da, tell them. Danielle will watch it. I'm yeah. very influential in my small Canadian town. Um, okay, and then this is the final question, pandemic related. If you could go anywhere right now, where would you go? Anywhere in the world. Oh. Or down your block. Where would you? Where would you go? Where
1: would I go? Oh, well. Right before this all started up, I um, got in, I was able to find the, okay, so the Mitford sisters, the family owned an island in the in the Hebrides in Scotland called Inch Kenneth. And the, there was a, and it's this tiny island with this beautiful house, rather large house on it, and just Really remote. Really takes forever to get there. You have to take uh, the train up to Scotland, and then you have to take another train to the to the coastline, and then you take a boat to one island, and then you get someone to like take you over to this other little island. Wow. And and um, I looked into who owns the island now, and it's this family that actually is descended from Darwin. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is a whole other, I mean, the British are just full of rabbit holes to go down. It, they just amaze me. Um, and the, the woman whose family owns it now is a, um, I think she's an economics professor at Cambridge. And I got in touch with her and sent her some of my pages. And she was respond very enthusiastically and invited me to visit uh, this island. And uh, I would love to go there. Oh,
0: yeah, you have to do that. You have to do. Would you go with Wayne by yourself? Would you take Lulu? What would you do?
1: Well, you know, Wayne only has so much patience for um, my mania with this whole thing. I have a girlfriend who is as deeply invested as I am. And last year, she and I went to, met in in, uh, England and went to, uh, I was. I'm also in touch with Jessica Mitford's son, um, Ben Truhoff, who uh, was born and raised in Oakland, but who is now a piano tuner in England. And he also was enthusiastic. I sent him over easy because he's from Oakland, so he knows about Mama's real. Oh Cafe. my God, that's. He was very, is very kind and generous, and met us in. Um, um, I can't remember. It's a county, Coventry. And which is where he lives, and we took the train to um, up to um, Devonshire, to, and and where he arranged through his cousin, the current Duke of Devonshire, sure. a, a tour of um, of Chatsworth, which is the massive massive pile that is owned by the Duke of Devonshire, that's full of billions of dollars, full of art treasures. And, um, then took us to, um, the Swan Inn, which is, uh, in, um, Swinbrook, which is where, uh, near one of the houses that the sisters grew up in. And the Swan Inn was owned by his aunt, the the Duchess of Devonshire, and was actually one of the houses that they owned. Uh, and, uh, so my friend Robin and I did this together and we were just swooning, swooning, swooning. Yeah, you must
0: have felt like a kid in a candy store.
1: Oh god, yeah, it was just just I can't even tell you. So you'll take
0: her, you'll take her to the island would, and leave I would, Wayne at home.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I think that would probably be the best thing for everyone. <laughs> I mean, Wayne and I have traveled together, and we travel well together, but um, she has more of an appetite for this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's you got to go with the right people. My dad was very into genealogy and uh, traced his family back and it were Scottish on my dad's side. and uh, they my mom and dad were living in Belgium for a while, so it wasn't quite as hard to get to Scotland. And uh, he went to all these places and traced all this stuff, and turns out we were really bad.
1: He, <laughs> he went yeah, to there was this. They were some pretty bloodthirsty Scots. That
0: was us. We were terrible. We raped and pillaged, and my dad didn't know that, right? So we went to this one castle, and he was this two, two little, like eighty-something-year-old tour guide. And my dad asked about our, our you know, the family name, and uh, oh, and they went on and on about how we, you know, came in and raped and pillaged while the lord was away. And they're like, oh, you right, know, what,
1: which castle was it?
0: Oh, I don't know. One of the castles. I,
1: was, I just finished reading. I mean, I. I also there seems to be a whole subgenre of um, books by members of the aristocracy who are just so eager to tell you about just how fucking miserable their childhoods were. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wait, uh, this one called "A Charmed Life: Growing Up in Macbeth's Castle" about Cawdor Castle. Mm. It was. It was. It was the setting for for Macbeth. Uh, but um, the she goes into the her her father is a miserable beast but she goes into the whole uh history of the the family and goes back to all that the bloodthirsty feuding and and stuff
0: yeah it just sounded horrible and we the reason we got kicked out we got that's why we came to canada we got kicked out apparently somebody from our family had to like fight one of the Robert the Bruces and we lost and whoever lost had to head out <laughs> and that was us and then apparently in um you know in Braveheart good old uh-huh. Braveheart um the people that they had mullets then right yeah that's right and skirts and they <laughs> they said the people that said to um Mel Gibson come with us we'll we'll take care of you and then turned him in um uh-huh. that that was us and so my dad is finding out all this stuff and he's like oh geez you know we we got better once we got to Canada um but it was so you know my and my mom didn't go on very many of these trips because she was like you know what this is your thing (laughs) off you go um but he just loved all that stuff and it is it's such a rabbit hole like it's just one thing after another well I'm so excited I will wait a couple of years for that to come out I'm very excited to see it and um I'm so happy that um, you came on the podcast and that I actually got my little recorder thing to work so that we could do this.
1: Yeah, this was really fun. It was
0: really fun. And um, next time I'm in L.A., um, I always I usually stay with Mark and Esther, um, but maybe we we will actually meet in person. Imagine that. That would be great. That would be great. I've never actually met Wayne either. Well, isn't that weird? Like we've, he was in my first book and I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. And so I feel, and I've watched beauty's embarrassing 12,000 times. It's like, Oh, I don't actually know. Like I've never actually met him (laughs) anyway. Um, but no, it'll, I would love to meet you guys in person and thank you so much for sharing all of your awesome, hilarious stories. And,
1: uh, Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh,
0: so fun. And I'm going to put a great big post together with everything so that I have an excuse to, to put it all in one spot. Um, and you're going to be my, my final episode of the season. Great. Wrapping it up with Mimi Pond. Um, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll let you get back to walking with Mabel and, um, and working on the Mitfords.
1: All right. Thank you so much. All right. I will talk to you
0: soon. Okay. Okay, Bye. bye. See, I told you she could tell a story. So much fun. Oh boy. I really need to get myself to LA so I can hang out with all of these amazing people and maybe even go for a walk with Mabel and her stick. (laughs) Now, before I sign off for the summer, I've got a few exciting creative challenges for you. Of course I do. I can't just leave for the summer without dropping a bunch of projects. Okay, first, my Skillshare class that I shot in New York way back in early March, moments before quarantine shut down the world, is now live. Uh, You can visit skl.org sh, so Skillshare, abbreviated, skl.sh slash Curator all one word. Um, go there, and that is where my class is sitting right this very second. I am so, so proud of it. It's all about aha moments. So I decided to share eight really big aha moments that I've experienced thanks to other artists like Ashley Longshore, Amy Sherald, and of course, Mimi's Ball and Chain, Wayne White. Um, I've also started a collaboration with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Hit Record. I know, so excited. So for my first project, which I hope will be one of many um, with Hit Record, I'm gonna ask you to contribute photos of objects from around your home, views out of your windows, or um, the places in your home that you know where you create or makes you feel creative. It's very quarantine 2020. Um, And then I'm gonna choose a bunch of them. I'm not sure how many yet, but I'm gonna choose a bunch um, as a starting point for a collage. I will then make the collage, and then of course, I will turn it over to you to see what you would do with the exact same images that I selected, because I know you're gonna wanna turn. Um, So I made a bit.ly link, so it's easier to find. So if you go and check out bit.ly, Slash hit record Danielle. All one word hit record Danielle. Um, bit.ly slash hit record Danielle. Yeah, that's it. Um, so both of those links for Skillshare and hit record are over on my site right now in the show notes. So you don't even have to remember what I just said. You can go over there and click on it. Anyway, thank you so much to Mimi Pond for being the perfect finish to a wonderful season. And thanks to you for listening. Have a happy, healthy summer full of creativity. There will be more art for your ear starting in early September. See you then.